morning, brothers and sisters. Welcome to, to all of you here on this Good Friday morning. Grateful that we can be here together to worship the Lord. Invite all of you to please rise and let's worship our God. As God's people, we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's now sing together. We're going to sing from hymn 26, verse 1. This Good Friday morning, we get to celebrate the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his death, our Savior has taken upon himself all the curse that we deserve. It's really in the law that the Lord shows us the, the sins that we've committed against him, and he shows us the riches of what Christ has done for us. Let's humble ourselves under the law of God as we hear it this morning in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, 
you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's now make a confession of our sins. We're going to sing together from Psalm 130. Psalm 130 also ends off with a note of great hope in the forgiveness that we receive through the, through the work of God. So Psalm 130, the verses 1 through 4.
Let's pray to God and let's ask God for his blessing. Almighty God, Father in heaven, we praise and thank you that you're a God who loves us, that you're a God who wishes to have relationship with us. We honor you that when we broke the relationship, that you took what it, you did what it took in order to restore that relationship once again. We stand in awe of you, Father, that you willingly sent your own son into this world to bear the curse for our sin. And Lord Jesus, we stand in awe of you that you are willing to, to take our curse upon yourself, that you willingly suffered the eternal wrath of God against all our sins to restore us in relationship with God. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you are a triune God who is full of love and truth and grace, that you're a God of justice and righteousness and holiness, and that you have created the way for us to continue in a relationship with you. We thank you that on this Friday morning we may come together in your presence in order to honor you, to thank you, and to glorify you, in order to reflect on what you have done for us. We pray that you would please work in our hearts with your Holy Spirit so that we may believe the promises of the gospel, that we may be convicted of our sins, that we may trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, that we may be deeply comforted in our hearts of your grace towards us. Lord, we ask that through the preaching of the gospel that you would draw us close to you so that we may love you more and more. We confess, Lord, that we don't deserve this, that we're sinners, that we've sinned against you, and that it's so comforting to, to sing together from Psalm 130, that as those who confess our sins, we can have good hope in you, that with your steadfast love, there is a full salvation. Please encourage us now with the gospel. Please build us up in our faith in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, this morning I may bring God's word to you as we find that in John 19, the verses 28 to 37. It's a part of the account of the Gospel of John where it tells us about Jesus Christ hanging on the cross and some of the things that he said and did during that time. And in preparation for that, I thought it's helpful for us to read the verses just prior to that. Let's read together from John 19, the verses 16 to 27. So we're going to read together John 19, starting at verse 16. You can find that on page 1076 of your guest Bible. So verse 16, it starts there in the previous section. So they delivered him over to them. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. That's a reference to, uh, to Pilate. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. 
So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures which said, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So far the reading. Let's now sing together. We're going to sing from one of the Messianic Psalms. We're going to sing from Psalm 22. This is a psalm that our Lord Jesus Christ quoted when he was on the cross. So we're going to sing the verses 1 and 6.
The text for the sermon this morning is taken from John 19 once again. This time we're going to keep reading at verse 28, and we're going to read through to verse 37. So once again, page 1076, John 19, starting at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So far the the text. Then after the proclamation of God's word, we're going to sing together from hymn 27, the verses 1, 2, 5, and 8. Love congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes when we, and especially when new Christians come to the Bible, then they expect that the Bible is going to be a series of heartwarming stories that inspire us to good, clean, moral living. And then when they actually start reading the Bible, they encounter something radically different. The stories are real and gritty. They're full of characters who commit not only ordinary sins, but also appalling sins, great evil. You read through the accounts of the patriarchs, and you read about things not just of coveting and lying and favoritism and betrayal and jealousy, but also of idolatry and murder and slave trading and incest and adultery and prostitution. And when you get to the stories of the kings, then you read about all these things. And on top of that, you also read stories of cannibalism, and of incest, of human sacrifice, and of witchcraft. Well, do you know what's so surprising? These are the people of God. These are the people whom God is going to bring into the kingdom of heaven. How is it possible that people who commit such evil, such appalling acts against other human beings, 
are able to be included in the kingdom of heaven? Well, God shows us that people are capable of great evil. They do horrific things. Yet his transforming grace is bigger than any of that. He is able to redeem and to restore a people who are capable of horror. You know, that's good news for us too, brothers and sisters. Because as a pastor, with the exception of cannibalism and slave trading and child sacrifice, I've heard stories of all these things being committed among the people of God. We too are those who are capable of horrific evil. And we do that. And yet it's possible for us to be saved. Can you believe it? Our only hope is that the Lord does it for us. Our Father astounds us. He tells us of his redeeming grace for those people who don't deserve it. And he doesn't do it by being nice. He doesn't do it by being this doting grandfather figure who tut-tuts his naughty children and tells them to be nice and to try better in the future. No, he does it by exercising justice. A justice that demands suffering and sacrifice. As an act of love, our Father sent his Son into this world to bear the curse of our sins. And that's what Christ did. He bore great evil. He experienced profound suffering. And he did it on our behalf. He was betrayed by his family. He was betrayed by his disciples. He was hated and falsely accused by the church leaders. He was innocently condemned by Pilate. He was flogged and crucified by the Roman soldiers. He was mocked by the people he came to save. And in those three hours of darkness, he bore the eternal wrath of God against all our sins. Well, he is our only hope, brothers and sisters. But the truth is, not everybody gets to share in that. The only people who share are the people who believe in him. You must humble yourself before him. You must confess your sins to him. You must acknowledge that you are a sinner. And you must trust him to cover those sins for you. It's really a heart issue. In your heart, you must be deeply humble and contrite. You must trust your Father to cover the sins that you've committed. Well, to help us believe that Jesus is the Christ so that we put our trust in him, God shows us here in our text that Jesus came in fulfillment to the scriptures. And so I preach God's word to you this morning with this theme, Christ was crucified, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We're going to see in the first place the testimony given of the, of the crucifixion, and secondly, the response demanded by the crucifixion. 
So first the testimony. Our text tells us about Christ as he's hanging on the cross. It's quite a statement here. Talk about the ultimate understatement. It's something that scripture often does. Christ has been crucified. Before that he was flogged. He's beaten. He's hanging on this cross. The sun has been beating down for him for hours. And then he says, I'm thirsty. Our text alerts us, there's another reason he says it. It's not just that he's thirsty, but our text says that he does this in fulfillment of the scriptures. In everything he did, Jesus was aware, he was conscious of the predictions about him. And he came in fulfillment to the scriptures. And so here in this context, he's quoting here from Psalm 22. He's fulfilling Psalm 22. We're just saying together, from the first verse, in the very first verse of that song, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are words that he spoke just a few hours earlier before the three hours of darkness. But then in verse 15 of the psalm, we also sang of it, it's prophesied there, my tongue sticks to my jaws. We would say it clings to the roof of my mouth. My tongue is like leather. I'm so thirsty. I desperately need something to drink. And they were told about how the people responded, those who were standing near, they, they had this jar, one of them had their water bottle, this jar next to him, he had this sour vinegar, sorry, sour wine, a bit vinegary. Takes a sponge, dips it in there, puts it on top of this hyssop branch, and they hold it up to Jesus to give him a sip to drink. Well, it's interesting that that again is done in fulfillment to the scriptures. In Psalm 69, we have another psalm that prophesies a number of things about the coming of the Christ. It says in verse 20 there, Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Well, again, it gives you a little glimpse into what's really going on for the Lord Jesus here. He's rejected and forsaken. He says the reproaches, the mocking, not just of the soldiers, not just of the crowds, but especially the reproach of his father is something he had to bear during those three hours of darkness. And it broke his heart. The father poured out on him all the reproach, all the criticism, all the judgment that we deserve for all our sins. And when Christ bore that, the scripture prophesies, it tells us, it broke his heart. There was no one who was with him during those, during those moments. But he had to do it. He had to fulfill the scriptures. That's the point that Peter makes, Acts 3.18. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled Again, in the words of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that, the, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. God wants everyone to know with perfect clarity that Christ came in accordance with the Scriptures, and he fulfilled what the Scriptures said of him. It's at this point that, that Jesus makes his last statement before he dies, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's finished. 
It's amazing words. It's the goal to which he lived. He said earlier back in, in John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's the whole purpose of my life. I have to do what God sent me to do. And in John 17, these were words that were spoken just before the occasion of his crucifixion. He prays to his father, John 17 verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I did it, Father. Everything you asked me, I completed it. I accomplished it. And so at the end of his life, just before he dies, he says, it is finished. And it's at that point he does something really remarkable. You know, for the rest of us, death comes to us. You're really sick. There's a moment where you die. But for Jesus, it was different. He came to this point. He says, it's finished. And then he took the initiative in dying. The scripture says that he gave up his spirit. And earlier he, he talked about that. It's back in John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And continuing in verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. I have the authority to decide when I'm going to die. And it's in that moment, after it was finished, that Jesus Christ gave up his spirit to the Father. He passed away. And then you see the uniqueness of Christ's death and what follows here. In verse 31, we're told that a little later, the leaders of the Jews asked Pilate, if the soldiers could break the legs of those criminals and take them down from the cross. Now, it could be that the reason they wanted Jesus' body and the other bodies to come down from the cross is because of what God had taught them back in Deuteronomy 21. It said in verse 22 there, he says that you're not allowed, if you, if you hang a person, you're not allowed to let his body stay overnight on a cross. You have to take him down. Otherwise, the land's polluted. So it's likely that that was part of the thinking of the, of the Pharisees here. But they were also told there's another motive. The next day was going to be the Sabbath. It was going to be the, the great Sabbath, the special Sabbath. It was the Passover Sabbath. And so they really didn't want the body still hanging on the tree during the special Passover. And so that's where it gets really gruesome. Now, before the soldiers are willing to take their bodies down from the tree, they have to make sure that the people are really dead. And so how do you do that? Well, you take an iron mallet and you shatter their legs. And it's not just the physical trauma, the loss of blood from, from breaking their legs. It's also when you're crucified, if you, if you don't have your legs to hold you up, then you can't get another breath. You can't pull yourself up to get the breath that you need. And so it means that people will suffocate and they'll die more quickly. But when they come to our Lord Jesus, then they saw he was already dead. And so they didn't break his legs. 
But then just to make sure, one of the soldiers, he takes out his sword and he sticks his sword in Jesus' side. Then we have this curious statement that out of his side comes blood and water. And all the explainers, they try to make sense of that. You know, why blood and water? You know, one of the popular explanations is that it's an indication of a heart attack. They had a heart attack earlier and that's something that, that happens to people when they have a heart attack. There's other people who say, no, it's the symbolism of it. The, the blood and water refer to, to the death of Jesus Christ, the blood that was shed for us, and the water refers to baptism, the washing of baptism. I'm not really, not really sure you know, what to make of it, brothers and sisters. The scriptures is not clear in telling us about what the, what the symbolism around this is. But the one thing we can be sure about, the thing it does emphasize, is the death of the Lord Jesus. He was really dead. They came to him and they stabbed him in the side and his blood and water came out and they were convicted. The soldiers were sure in their own heads that Jesus was really dead. And that's the core issue. Now Christ died according to the scriptures. And God wants to make sure that, that everyone, also us of later generations, that we come to understand that he was really dead. But then at the same time, there's also more going on here. In not breaking Jesus' bones, they also fulfill another prophecy of Scripture. It's in Psalm 34, verse 20. There God tells us what he will do for the righteous man. It says, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And then you'll, re- you'll remember that, that Jesus Christ, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, he's addressed as the Passover lamb. It's the term that, that the Apostle Paul uses to describe who Jesus is and what he did. He came as the great Passover lamb, the, the one who was sacrificed so that God would pass his judgment over us. Well, if you go back to Exodus 12, verse 46, it talks about what happened when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. And one of the stipulations is, whatever happens, you're not allowed to break any of its bones. And so for Jesus to be the great Passover lamb... Also, none of his bones could be broken. And so once again, he's fulfilling the scriptures. And then in verse 37, John also tells us that Christ fulfilled the passage that says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Again, we we sang of that, Psalm 22. It's in verse 16 there, it says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Once again, God's really impressing on us here, brothers and sisters, that Jesus died according to the scriptures. Well, for an Israelite at that time, it was a very significant event. You know, we're in a different space because we have the New Testament. You have the whole of the New Testament that testifies that Jesus is the Christ. Well, if you were a Jew who was living in Palestine in 30 AD, then how do you know who's the Christ? They've had other people who came before who claimed to be the Christ, but how do you know who he really is? Well, the way you know is by comparing what it says in the Scriptures. Does he fulfill the scriptures? And so during the course of the life of Jesus Christ, and especially during his suffering on the cross, the Lord shows time after time after time after time that Christ did indeed fulfill the scriptures. He wants everyone to know 
that Jesus is the Christ. And John's explicit about that. He writes about that in verse 35. He said, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. I'm a true witness. I was there. I saw it happen, and it happened in accordance with the scriptures. And I'm writing these things down so that you also may believe the truth, that Jesus is the Christ. Well, that's the first thing that's going on in this text, brothers and sisters. God wants to convince you. He wants you to understand that Jesus is the Christ, that he came in fulfillment to the scriptures, that he did everything that was testified about him. But then there's also more that's going on in our text. The crucifixion has a far deeper meaning. And in using some of these passages, the Lord seeks to direct our attention to some of the the deeper meaning of what's going on here. God's telling us that the crucifixion of Christ is not just an event that happened in the past. It's an event of enduring significance. It's actually the greatest gift that God ever gave to his people. Now, you know what it's like to give a gift, brothers and sisters. You've all given gifts to, to family members, friends. If you give a gift, if you give the right gift to the right person, to a person at the right time, there's just a profound joy in that. I've done it a couple of times in my life that I found just the perfect gift at the right time for a specific person. There's a profound joy in giving that gift. There's a profound joy that you have when you see the person receive the gift because exactly what they could ever have wished for. Well, this is what your father does. He's the most precious gift in the world. He gives his own son. And he gives that to you. It's the greatest thing ever. Now he's waiting. And he wants to see, what's your response? What do you do with this? I sent my own son into the world to die on the cross for your sins. But what do you do with that? That's the question that our text asks of us. The last quotation here, the last statement about Christ in our text is that he fulfilled the scriptures that said, they will look on him, they have pierced. Well, it's not only a quotation of Psalm 22, it's also a quotation of Zechariah 12. Maybe if you want to turn with me, let's, let's read together a few verses from Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the last books of the Old Testament. Zechariah Malachi. So second last book in the Old Testament. And if you go to, uh, to chapter 10, you find that on page, or sorry, chapter 12, you find that on page 950 of your guest Bible. So Zechariah chapter 12, in the first verses of this chapter here, we're told about how the nations will, will gather around Jerusalem because they want to wipe her out. They want to clear her off the map. But then the Lord says here, he says, verse 4, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. So he says, they're not going to be able to accomplish what they set out to do. I'm going to rescue my people. And he works it out. The next verse is he says, I'm going to destroy those who fight against Jerusalem. And that kind of sets the context. I'd like to read with you, starting in verse 10. 
So Zechariah 12, verse 10, it says there, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, then they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps for a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and the wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. What you have, dear brothers and sisters, is a prophecy of them looking on the one they have pierced. And when they see him, then they're going to mourn as one mourns for an only child. Imagine having an only child. Can you imagine your baby dying? And the grief that you have as parents? They will mourn as they mourned on the plains of Megiddo. It's in 2 Chronicles 35:22. We're told that King Josiah went to fight against Pharaoh Necho. Pharaoh came up from Egypt and he was going to go fight against the king of the north. And Josiah came out. He was passing through his territory. And so Josiah came out and he fought against Pharaoh Necho. And when he fought against him, he died. That was the saddest thing in the world for the Israelites. Josiah was a godly man. He loved the Lord. He turned the heart of the nation, of the people, back to their God. And so when this godly young king died... Then there was this profound grieving and mourning in all the houses of Israel. All the people, they were deeply saddened about the fact that, that he wasn't their king anymore. He wasn't leading and guiding them any longer. Well, God says that's the kind of grief, the grief of an only child, the grief that the people had for Josiah. That's the kind of grief that people are going to have when they look on the one whom they have pierced. Well, you know, when they pierced him, when they crucified him, they weren't in that space. When they crucified him, then they yelled out in front of Pilate. They demanded for his death, crucify him, crucify him. And there was this riot that was starting. And so Pilate crucified the man. He gave in to their will. It was not long after that, that there was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. A little later in verse 13, one, 13 verse 1, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. When the Holy Spirit of God was poured out on the church in Pentecost, then Peter preached the sermon. And he showed the people that Jesus is the Christ. You have just 
crucified the Son of God. You killed him, God himself. And the people were mortified. They were cut to the heart. Acts 2.38, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They saw themselves through new eyes. They realized the horror of what they'd done. They looked on the one who they had pierced, and they perceived the profound evil that they'd committed. And deep in their hearts, they mourned over their sins. Brothers and sisters, it's not only them who crucified the Christ. It's also you and me. By all our sins. By all the evil that we have committed. God's justice demands that every single sin that you commit be punished. And it will be punished. There's not one sin that you commit that goes away unpunished. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you bear the punishment yourself. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then Christ had to bear it on the cross. And so the question becomes, when you look at the cross, do you also do so with the spirit of mourning? Do you mourn for your sins? Are you honest? about the things that you've done wrong, brothers and sisters? Honest with yourself? Honest with God? Honest with the people around you? If you're not, you'll bear the punishment. The Lord will not allow sin to go unpunished. If you know the truth, and if you deliberately keep on sinning, God says, Hebrews 10, 26, he says, then no sacrifice for sins is left. He says, if you know that you're sinning against me, you really don't care, and you're just going to do it anyways, and you're going to continue on in that lifestyle, and you're going to mock my son, God says, forget it. You spurn the Son of God, you profane the blood of the covenant, you outrage the spirit of grace, and you're done. Then you bear the punishment for your sin. The day is coming when the Lord Jesus is going to come back, brothers and sisters. God's going to force you to look on the one whom you have pierced. That's what it says in Revelation 1 verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Every single person is going to look on the one whom they have pierced. Well, some have already wailed in contrition. They've been honest about their sins. They recognize sin for what it is. They've repented of their sin. They've humbled themselves before God. They plead with him for his for grace and forgiveness. And those people, they will look on him with great joy. Because he is their Lord. And he's come to save them. But there's others who will wail in profound contrition. In great fear. Revelation 6.15 tells us what it will be like for the wicked on the last day when Christ comes. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals and the rich and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne 
and from the Lamb, for, great, for the great day of the wrath has come. And who can stand? He's coming with power to judge. The sky will be rolled back as a scroll. The mountains and the islands will be made low. And all people will stand before the judge of the earth. The books will be opened. And every person will give an accounting for all the things as written in the books. Well, those who refuse to repent, they will see the horror of what they've done. And in abject terror, they will try to flee from the judge of all the earth. But the judge will call them to account. And he will make them pay for everything that they've ever done. When you think about it, brothers and sisters, and it's pretty confronting. Because it is our nature to try to hide our sins. We minimize, we justify, we excuse, we overlook. What hope is there? The only hope is that the Lord pours on us the spirit of grace so that we too may plead for mercy. The good news of the text is that the Lord encourages you in that direction, brothers and sisters. The very first thing Christ said in our text here is he said, I thirst. It reminds you of an earlier time where he said the same thing. He met a Samaritan woman and he said to her, can you please give me a drink? I'm thirsty. And she was taken aback. First that he's talking to her. Then he said to her, he got into this conversation, John 4.10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then the woman was really taken aback. Now, who are you? You have nothing to draw out of the well. And so Jesus spells it out for her. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty forevermore. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you ask me, I will give you this living water. And in John 7:37, he tells his followers that the Holy Spirit is the living water whom he will give to all who look to him in faith. Our only hope, brothers and sisters, is that Christ give us his spirit, that he works in our hearts so that we may have the humility and the contrition that we need before the throne of grace. And so the great thing for us to do is to plead with God that he grant us his grace and to work in our hearts with his Holy Spirit so that we become aware of all the sins that we've committed, that we repent of the evil we have done. You can't save yourself. Trying harder just doesn't cut it. Raising moral children doesn't make a difference. And we need a radical transformation that only God can give us 
through the powerful working of his spirit. Well, he loves your, God as your father, brothers and sisters, and he loves you dearly. He gave his most precious gift, he gave his own son to save you from your sins. Now he says, just treasure that with all your heart. And he says, live out of that. Show me my love by loving me, by humbling yourself before me. Ask me for the gift of my spirit, and I'll live in your heart, and I'll give you the humility that you need so that you also can share in my grace. And if you're in that space, then the one, when the one whom we have pierced returns on the clouds of heaven, then instead of that being a terror for you, that will be your greatest joy. You will come down to bring you up into heaven, to see your father face to face, and to give you a share in an eternal life together with God in heaven. Amen. Let's sing of the, the great gift of our Lord and Savior. Let's sing together from hymn 27, the verses 1, 2, 5, and 8. now call upon the Lord in thanksgiving and prayer. In our prayer this morning, we'll also remember with gratitude that young Miles Van Dune could receive an operation this past week. So grateful to God that the operation went well. They, um, it was open heart surgery. They fixed a hole in his heart, put in some valves, and they fixed an artery. Such a little boy, but thankfully everything went well. and He's recuperating well. So we'll praise God for the gifts of his grace. 
Let us pray. Almighty God and Father in heaven, we thank you and we honor you that you sent Jesus Christ into this world to pay the price for our sin. We thank you, Lord, that Christ fulfilled the scriptures. He knew what your word called him to do. He knew the prophecies that you made of him. He understood what his calling was, and his whole focus in life was to accomplish what you gave him to do. He loved you, Father, and he did it. And so you accepted his sacrifice. You're satisfied with it. And he paid for our sins, and he took our curse upon himself. We're so thankful that we may know him, that we may believe in him, and that through him that we may share in you. Father, thank you for the gift of your grace. Thank you for sending your curse on Jesus Christ instead of on us. And thank you that you accepted his sacrifice in our behalf. Now we humble ourselves before you, Lord, and we plead with you that you would give us the grace of your Holy Spirit so that we may live in humility and contrition before you. We have to confess to you, Lord, that it is our natural inclination to minimize our sin, to justify the things that we have done wrong, to excuse and to overlook them. It's really hard for us to be honest with the people around us about the sins we've committed. We feel that people will judge us, and we we're so concerned about, about our own reputation. And so sometimes we hide, and we're not honest. At core, Lord, we don't love the people around us. That's also true in our relationship with you. At times, we try to hide our sin. We don't often do it as much because we know that you know what we do. Sometimes we just squish it into a corner of our minds where we're not honest about it. We plead with you, Lord, that you would please forgive us for that. We ask that you give us a rich measure of your spirit, that we can be deeply humble and contrite about our sin, that we honestly acknowledge it before you, because we understand, Lord, this is the only way to receive forgiveness. We must confess our sins. That's the way that you've taught us, by which we can receive the grace of our Lord Jesus. Thank you for giving us this spirit, and thank you for the work that the Spirit has done in our hearts already. And we plead with you, Father, that he would finish the good work that he has begun. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who, who does not believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, who is not, who's not willing to be honest about their sin and to confess it, we pray that you would work that out for us, that you, that you work with your Spirit to bring us to humility, and that you, you bring us to yourself. Father, thank you for, for taking the initiative in that as well. Thank you for pouring out your Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Thank you also for working in our hearts through your spirit to bring us to this point. Please continue this good work within us. Please grant, Lord, that no one here this morning may miss out on the glorious day of Jesus Christ, that each one of us may stand before the throne, washed in the blood of Jesus and sharing in his eternal life. Lord, we can't wait for the day where we get to see you, where we get to be with you, where we get to, to experience an, an intimate relationship with you by, by sight and not by faith. In the meantime, Lord, we pray that you give us great faith, that we pursue you, that we know you, and that, you love, that we love you as you have loved us. Father, we thank you that we can also look forward to, to Sunday morning where we get to celebrate Easter. We celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, 
that he ascended into heaven, that he's seated at your right hand, that he has power and authority to accomplish his work in our lives. Dear Lord, we also pray that you would carry us on this day. Please give us a good day. We have a day of holiday and pray that you bless the, the contact and the fellowship we have with family and friends. Grant, Lord, that this may, may be a blessed day, that in what we do today, we may please you, that we, we show you our love. And then, Father, we pray that you bless our fellowship that we have together, that you give us your spirit, and that this can be a time of joy for us. I also want to ask, Lord, that you accept our thanks for the, for the gift that you've given to young Miles Vendun. So thankful for the operation that the doctors could do. We're grateful for the blessing that you gave on that. I want to ask, Lord, that you please give him healing. Grant that, that, he may, that his heart may heal, that he doesn't get any infection. Grant that in due time that, that he can also return home together with his parents. Father, in the meantime, we pray that you continue to be near to Josh and Monique, that you give them a rich measure of your Holy Spirit, that they have great patience, that they continue in, in faith before you, Please sustain them and carry them. So much waiting and so much that they have to entrust their son to your throne of grace. Please give them the patience and the faith that they need. Please carry them. Please bless them through this process as well, Lord. We're so thankful that, that you have our hearts and our lives in your hands and that you do all things for our good. We pray that we can see that in this situation as well. Please also be with the rest of the family and please comfort them during this time. Father, we also pray that you please would take care of the, the others in our congregation who need you in special ways. You know each one of us. You know the, the joys and the struggles that we face. Please be a father to us. I also pray, Lord, that you care for the elderly members among us. We also have some elderly members who are in Fairhaven. It's been a difficult time in Fairhaven in the past weeks. We pray, Lord, that you would be near to, to the residents there. We ask that you protect their health and that you keep them safe. We also pray, Lord, that you would please be with the staff as they look after the residents, that you also protect them from illness, that you also give them everything that they need. There's a lot of extra demands on them because of the COVID restrictions. We pray that you give them all that they need to be able to, to handle that in a good way. Please also bless the administration and, and be with the board, Lord. They need to make good decisions for the well-being of, of the, the residents there and also for the, for the staff. We're grateful for the, for the leadership that's provided, grateful for the blessing that you have provided, and we pray that, that we can have a, a spirit of unity going forward, that we care for our old people, and that we have a united understanding of what that looks like, and that together, that, that the, the elderly may be well cared for, and that you would look after them. Father, thank you for being our God, and, and thank you for your help in these things. I also pray for the many other old people within our country. There's so many, so many elderly people who are also living with, with so much trial because of, because of COVID and because of the restrictions. Pray that you would be a father to, to all those who need you, that you show your love and grace to those who look to you in faith. Father in heaven, we pray that you would also please accept the thank offerings that we bring before you this morning. Grateful for the work of Under His Wings. It's another opportunity to share the hope of the gospel with those who don't know you. We pray for your blessing over that, Lord. Please grant that you would grant your blessing to, to Brother Alf Woonings, the conversations that he gets to have with others, bless all the other work that goes on there. Please grant that they may make the most of the opportunities to share your hope and love with those who don't know you. And please draw people to yourself also through this means. Pray that you be with the board, that you give them wisdom in knowing how to do things in a good way. 
And we ask that you would do these things for the glory of your name and for the well-being of your people. Father, we ask that you would please bring many people to come to know you also in our community. Grant that your word may go out, that the message of, of Good Friday and Easter, Easter morning may, may resonate among many people, that they may consider who Jesus Christ is and put their hope and faith in him alone. Please hear us now, we pray, and grant us our request, Father. We ask that in humility, and we pray it only in Jesus' name. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, this morning, the collection is indeed for the Ministry of Mercy. The collection is going to be taken at the doorway on the way out of church. And so at this time, I invite you to rise, and we're going to sing together from hymn 30, the verses 1, 3, and 4. Receive now the blessing of the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all.
Amen.